Now that we understand that there is actually a brain substrate, there are parts of the brain that are involved in why that person can't make good decisions, it takes the blame away to a certain degree. It's, it's really not their fault that so much in our modern world has conspired to lock them into this impulsivity that leads to not exercising, eating the wrong foods, going to sleep too late, all the things that we know ultimately serve to increase inflammation, making it even harder to make better decisions moving forward. That was a big moment for us. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always hey, wanted to Betty's, be part welcome of. Back and to I better want to with be Dr. Having. Stephanie. So it's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I am bringing you just an incredible conversation with Dr. David Perlmutter. We are discussing his latest book that he wrote with his son, Dr. Austin Perlmutter, Brainwash. And we are going to be talking about all of the things that are toxic to the human brain. Now, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. You are not going to want to miss this, especially as it relates to current events. Now, in case you have not heard of Dr. Perlmutter, he is a board certified neurologist and a five-time New York Times bestselling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. And his books have been published in 32 languages, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain. That was such an important book for me, as well as other, uh, other New York Times bestsellers like Brain Maker, The Grain Brain Cookbook, and now Brainwash. Now, when I sat down uh, with David for this discussion, we talked about his book, in the context of the pandemic. Now, one of the things that was really interesting was that his book was actually released just honestly days before um, the pandemic hit. And so he was talking about this gross overactivation of our survival networks and our stress responses from modern day life. But our discussion today really did, we added on a layer of that in the context of the pandemic, how some of the stressors that we all as a collective have been undergoing have affected our brain. So we started talking about our brains being hijacked, right? So 
you know, this is really for people who are asking themselves, like, why can't I make good decisions? Right. So we started talking about the difference between different brain structures, uh, the prefrontal cortex versus, you know, the amygdala. We started talking about the impact that food has, um, on the brain. So we talked about, uh, inflammation, uh, by way of nutrition and, you know, so this globalization of, uh, the Western diet and some of the impacts that, that has had worldwide wide. Um, one of the things that I, um, actually forgot to mention to him in this podcast was I remember when I was leaving Italy, uh, in 2019 and there was this big uproar in the Italian newspapers that they were finally like after, you know, years and years of persistence, they were finally, um, there was a Starbucks that was going to be opening, I think at, at the Rome airport or something. And the literally Italians were in uproar and, and rightly so, right. I mean, you know, rat poison, American coffee versus Italian cappuccino. I mean, come on, it's, it's an easy choice. So, uh, so we talked about food as <laughs> that's just my own little spin there, but we talked about food as it changes, um, markers in the brain, markers of inflammation and our ability to make um, good decisions. We talked about sleep as a means that, um, you know, most people understand they need to be getting good sleep. But we talked about this in the context of how um, things during the pandemic may have changed our metabolism. So we talked about, um, you know, half a pound gained, you know, Americans reported half a pound gained for every 10 days in isolation during the pandemic. And we already know pre-pandemic that about a third of Americans are not getting enough sleep. And you can really extrapolate that, um, you know, when we say American you know, it really should be North American because Canadians, you know, we like to poo poo and we like to tip our nose up, but like our American, our obese American cousins to the South, but make no mistake, we're making the exact same errors here, if not, if not more. So we talked about, um, sleep. We talked about excess adipose tissue as a means for pro-inflammation and affecting our ability to make good decisions. And he really talked about all of these different proxies in the context of something that he labeled disconnection syndrome, which is this idea that we are disconnecting from different brain structures. So the prefrontal cortex, for example, from the amygdala, but also just as a larger, you know, we can talk about it mechanistically, like two different nerve, uh, in two different areas of the brain, but also disconnected from ourselves, disconnection from the hemispheres. And really we talk about this idea that the prefrontal cortex is a part of our humanity. And when you lose that, you lose it. You know, we become less human. We become more reactive. Maybe we become more like the algorithm that is being proposed to us by certain social media sites. So we talk about digital experiences. Of course, we talk about social media and we talk about this quite, you know, I ask him this question, like, are we using technology or is it using us? And he really makes a very sound argument for you know, wanting to engage in social media, but in a conscious, meaningful way. So we talk about something that he came up in the book, Brainwash. Uh, it's the time acronym. So you'll learn about what that is in our discussion. And um, it was just, and then he, he talks about, you know, a 10 day program that he's outlined in the book that's going to help people um, really take back their brains and in essence, take back um, their humanity. 
Now, Dr. Perlmutter, as I mentioned, you know, I picked up Grain Brain many years ago. It was one of the books where I was just applauding the author, you know, before I knew him. So it was such a treat for me to be able to interview him. Uh, he's been, you know, one of my mentors from afar, if you will, for many years. And it was just a dream for me to be able to geek out and talk neuroscience with him. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. David Perlmutter. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause. And mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. All right, Dr. David Perlmutter, I am thrilled to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm, I'm thinking back so long ago when we first met, which was on Clubhouse, I saw your name and yes. uh, reached out and here we are. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was saying to you just in the, in the pre-chat, your and your son, uh, Dr. Austin Perlmutter, the uh, weekly uh, Clubhouse chats that you host are the highlights of my week. It's part of the reason oh why I'm gosh, on Clubhouse. Oh my gosh, that's such a compliment. Thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. So we are going to talk today about your book, Brainwash, and it was released January 2020, so a little over a year ago now. But what I found and what I find so interesting about this book is, of course, it was released and then a couple of weeks, you know, after that, the world was changed forever with the pandemic. And I think some of the content in the book is in some cases, even more relevant with the pandemic than without. So I, and particularly the, you talk about, we're going to deconstruct this through our conversation today, but particularly the gross overactivation of our survival networks in the brain, our stress response, and then how that can augment our decision-making trees, right? How we make decisions for better or for worse. So what I'm hoping, um, if it's okay with you, is in our conversation today is to be talking about some of the pillars that you outline in the book, but also wherever it's relevant or pertinent for us to maybe speak about how you've noticed maybe some observational, whether it's clinical or just your own personal observations, how this has been uh, really brought to the forefront with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Sure. Good. Well, let me start by saying that the the genesis of our book, Brainwash, uh, took place, oddly enough, in this very room uh, in a conversation between me and my son. And we were laboring over what does it take to be a good clinician, to be a good doctor, to help people to achieve whatever it is that they're trying to work through. 
And we realized it's a three-step process. The first step is we've got to do our very best to learn as much information as we can. You know, that's inherent in our education, in our post-graduation uh, education for those who wish to continue educating themselves. And part two of the um, three-step process is the uh, transcription and conveyance of that information to the client or patient. Uh, we've got to give that information as best we can. So. We have to do our best to learn it. Then we have to work on our communication skills so that I can impart to you the information in a way that you can get your arms around. And then part three, we realize is the most uh, ignored and the most challenging. And that is uh, when the ball is hit to your side of the court, what are you going to do with that information? How do you act upon the information that you've been given? We realize that that's where the system seems to break down, that Patients, by and large, don't do the things that we have been asking them to do. You know, in our world, it's mostly the lifestyle issues of changing your diet, getting more exercise, paying attention to your sleep, maybe even going so far as to getting out in nature and even meditating, uh, but really the fundamentals. And we realize that so much of what we deal with on a day-to-day -day level in terms of illness really is a reflection of making bad choices. So... We began to distill this notion that that is where the system tends to break down. And, you know, until we, we came to that realization, the operative paradigm was one where we simply said, you know, Mrs. Jones, you've got to make better decisions. Maybe next time when we see each other, you will have your blood sugar under control or will have lost the weight or do all the things. And it was very much a finger pointing exercise between doctor and patient, blaming the patient. We realized that is not appropriate. It's not appropriate because it's not the patient's fault by and large. And that was a big moment for us when we were sitting here talking about this. We realized that as we began to deconstruct the decision-making process, we realized that it's really wrong to blame people for making these bad decisions, knowing full well that when they go home and look at themselves in the mirror, they're blaming themselves as well. Why can't I blank? Why can't I exercise? Why can't I stick to the diet? Why do I crash and burn at five o'clock and, and eat the bad things that I do? And we really wanted to look very closely at what it takes to make good decisions. And what we began to understand as we explored it very deeply, was that there are two major decision-making parts of the brain uh, that are kind of competing for the ultimate outcome, the ultimate decision that you make about anything. Uh, one area called the amygdala, a primitive area of the brain, is very uh, needs-driven, short-sighted, self-centered, non-empathetic. It's, I want the jelly donut right now, I'll even steal it if I have to. I don't care. It's what I want for me. Versus the area of the brain behind the forehead called the prefrontal cortex, which is the adult in the room, if you will. It's take a deep breath. Let's look at as much data as we have, information, talk about our past experiences with this decision. Uh, how might this play out in the future for me? But importantly, how might my decision affect Stephanie, how might it affect my neighbor? How might it affect the planet? And so we, we began to understand that there are certain things that lock us into the amygdala, lock us into that immature 
primitive impulsive center of the brain. And some of the things that lock us into that area include things like inflammation, which we've been studying for so many years as it relates to Alzheimer's, diabetes, obesity, coronary artery disease, all the big chronic disease processes. And we realized that the prefrontal cortex is trying to be that adult in the room and to exercise control over the amygdala and make better decisions. We call that top-down control, but that so many things in our modern world are conspiring to keep us away from better decision-making. Now, let's get back into the, the medical office where we are working with a patient who, say, needs to lose weight or needs to gain better control over his or her blood sugar. And we're kind of thinking that that person's not making good decisions. Now that we understand that there is actually a brain substrate, there are parts of the brain that are involved in why that person can't make good decisions, it takes the blame away to a certain degree. It's, it's really not their fault that so much in our modern world has conspired to lock them into this impulsivity that leads to not exercising, eating the wrong foods, going to sleep too late, all the things that we know ultimately serve to increase inflammation, making it even harder to make better decisions moving forward. That was a big moment for us. We realized we were onto something. And then like you say, COVID appeared. And what did COVID do? COVID delineated the world into people making good decisions and people making bad decisions. People deciding to act in a way that was only self-serving versus those individuals who realized that their actions affected others. The other thing that COVID did in terms of delineation was we saw that the outcome in terms of COVID uh, infection was really very much determined by previous decision-making. That individuals who had made decisions that were less uh, in line with good health and became overweight, became type two diabetic, became hypertensive, had a worse outcome as it related to COVID. So COVID really segregated bad decision makers from people making better decisions. And, and like you say, uh, in January of 2020, it was a bit prescient because, you know, what we're talking about is your decisions day to day have a big role to play in your health outcome. When you layer what happened with uh, COVID on top of that, it made it uh, incredibly clear that our decisions were absolutely fundamental in terms of, you know, our chance of good versus bad outcome as it related to this uh, variable, which was now this infectious agent. I love that. And I think, you know, as a clinician, and there are many clinicians who listen to this podcast, one of the frustrations, I mean, I will just, you know, in the spirit of being open and honest and transparent in my earlier days as a, as a newer doctor, I had that same hubris, like what is wrong with this patient? Like they came seeking my care. I spent an hour doing these clinical tests and telling them their report of findings and I'm giving them the information that they need. And I think that there was, you know, you, you can very easily fall into that trap thinking, well, this, there's malintent here. Like this patient just doesn't want to get better. 
And one of the things that I, that I love about really the, th the thematic of, of your book is that we shouldn't be judging the behavior of the patient or the person, that there's an upstream issue. Like it's not the behavior. The behavior is, is a result. Behavior is the manifestation. It's the man exactly. Who knew? Yes. Who knew? Right. Exactly. So all of these behavioral mod interventions are not actually getting at the root cause of the problem. And, you know, I think that you so eloquently just described, you know, the amygdala and the midbrain versus the you know newer area of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. And in my training, uh, it, it's, it's our humanity. Like that's what makes us human. And one of the big, you know, my, some of my mentors in the, uh, functional neurology world will talk about this idea that the, one of the main roles of the prefrontal cortex is this idea of inhibition. So you have the amygdala, the child, right? Like you were talking about, like, I want the donut. I want the donut. I don't care what I got to do to get the donut. And then you have the adult that's like, okay, honey, like, I know you want the donut, but why don't, you know, why don't we do some, you know, squats <laughs> or something? Like, why don't we do something <laughs> to earn the donut, you know, or, or whatever, whatever it is. So you have this adult that's inhibiting these lower brain centers that is going to allow for these better decisions. Um, yeah, you know, we, we tend to, let me, let me use a metaphor here that I think will make it very clear. And that is in the, in the doctor patient or healthcare provider client interaction, we tend to think that we're going to hit the ball over the net and then it's up to that other individual to, to then it's their turn. Uh, I, I think that we should both be on the same side of the court and, um, working, uh, you know, working together as opposed to it being one way and then waiting for that response. And again, recognizing what you just said, I think is really very important that there are so many things that are keeping that individual away from the ability to make those decisions. And here's a real world example then. Patient is coming to see you with, um, with type 2 diabetes and, uh, you know, what they would typically get, it's a new doctor, what am I gonna get? They're gonna walk out of the office with a, a good diet, whether it's ketogenic or at least it's low carb, whatever it, that doctor thinks is going to be helpful for that diabetic. But the, the, you, know, you know darn well that uh, that patient has gotten that diet or other diets countless times with other healthcare providers and they don't work. Why don't they work? Because that individual doesn't have the decision-making tools to implement that or any other good information. We have to come upstream and work first on the decision-making process. Then we can layer on all the great stuff. But until we work on the their decision-making process, we're not going to make progress. So it might be that you say to this individual that, um, you know, you're probably expecting a diet, but we'll get to that. What we need to work on is getting you in a better frame of mind such that the information I give you uh, will be better uh, for, you'll be able to implement more readily. And it might be that this week until I see you again, or two weeks, uh, we're going to work on your sleep, for example. Now that's going to raise eyebrows. I'm diabetic. Why are you concerned with my sleep? Well, we could talk about the relationship of lack of sleep to insulin resistance, but more importantly, we could talk about the relationship of poor sleep in terms of its length and its quality and how that relates to decision-making. How even one night of non-restorative sleep 
activates the amygdala by as much as 60% increase in terms of its impulsivity uh, activity, in terms of decision-making, just one night. We all know that when we stay up late and don't get enough sleep, our food choices the next day are, are crappy. We eat junk food because we just can't get our arms around bringing online that prefrontal cortex, the adult, and then making better decisions. We know that people who chronically don't get enough good or restorative sleep will consume as much as 300 extra calories per day, which adds up to about a pound of body fat in about 10 days. So it, this isn't, and what does that do? You know, you gain weight, then you develop sleep apnea, you sleep more poorly, you make even worse decisions. It's a feed forward, terrible pun uh, cycle. But that said, let's find an on-ramp for better decision-making for each individual. And in a person whose primary problem may well be diet related, the on-ramp is not going to be to give them a better diet. It, it will be as useless as it's been in the past. Let's talk about getting out into nature. Maybe we'll try 20 minutes of meditation each day. One of the biggest traction points that we have leveraged is sleep. Uh, so incredibly important for reducing inflammation, reducing cortisol, both of which have a huge effect directly on disconnecting the prefrontal cortex from its ability to exercise this top-down control and reining in the amygdala, this parent in the room, if you will. Yeah. And it's it's sort of like the, you know, you always hear like neurons that wire together, fire together, but the opposite is also true, right? Neurons that fire apart will begin to wire apart. So the longer that you have this, and we're going to talk about this disconnection syndrome, which is a syndrome that you present in the book with all of the different uh, tentacles, if you will, or, you know, tributaries, if you will, have a river leading into this big. Right now I have an octopus in mind. I got the <laughs> tentacles and the suckers, man, it's great. It's a great metaphor. <laughs> so we we have this disconnection syndrome, but there are different, there are low level ways, like there's the low hanging fruit, if you will, that we can begin to hack into this. And if I, if I, you know, extrapolate a little bit and you can tell me here if I've, you know, if I've gone too far, but what I think you're trying to do here is you're trying to hack the parasympathetic nervous system, because what happens in modern day, and we can begin to sort of wade into the waters of what are some of the modern, you know, corrosive, uh, you know, behaviors and activities that are, that are killing our ability to make better decisions. But what I observe is that people are always in this state of um, threat and this sympathetic tone, like the sympathetic dominance. And there's not the, you don't, and while I, I believe that the sympathetic nervous system is brilliant, it is essential. It's also just supposed to be there for a short Delta T, like it's supposed to be in and out, right? But you, you know, you're driving all the time. You're going to a job that you hate. You have a toxic family relationship. You, you know, you're eating the sugary, you know, jelly donut or, or you're not getting enough, just generalized low movement. And you're sympath you're in this kind of stress response, this chronic low grade inflammation that you talk about in the book. So let's, um, well, first, let me ask you, is that, is that a, um, Am workable I on, model? Yeah. Is that a workable? Are we trying to move? Is it that you're trying to sort of hack into the parasympathetics here by getting out in nature and having more movement? Is that is that a reasonable um, assumption? Oh, it, it, it's uh, right on target. And um, when you think about what you just described in the context of our last year, 
you know, the world conspired to to make us uh, be really locked into a sympathetic uh, existence where day in and day out we've been threatened. Uh, the next shoe is going to drop and there'll be a variant that the, the immunizations are not going to work, again. whatever it may be. Every day it's something new to add on that really uh, ends up amping up our uh, fight and flight uh, activity, our fear of what's going to happen next. And what does that do? Well, it acts to destabilize us through multiple mechanisms. Yes, it activates uh, the creation of this chemical called cortisol, which changes the array of bacteria that live in the gut. It destabilizes the gut lining, making it more permeable, and that then amplifies inflammation. In addition, it plays a significant role in dysregulating our metabolism such that we are much more predisposed to insulin resistance and elevated blood sugar, paving the way for us to become type two diabetic. Uh, it also leads to uh, the increased production of body fat and certainly the lifestyle choices that we make are in a stress condition are not as salubrious as they could be if we were in a different state of mind, if you will. So step one is to, is to recognize that the world is fanning the flames of our stress. And we are being taken advantage of by news media, by social media, by really so much of our day-to-day -day experience that we can regulate, that we can put into appropriate context and deal with. The important step one, though, is to realize that it's happening. Step two, realize how threatening it is for us. And then step three is to deal with it and make the changes that we talk about in the book. But, you know, make no mistake about it. Uh, whatever affiliation a person might have in terms of what news feed they, uh, is directly going into their brains, whatever uh, right versus left, uh, it still captivates us by amplifying the sense of doom and gloom uh, and that's what sells. That's what keeps us coming back for more. It is, in every sense of the word, addictive. The problem is that the more we experience that, the more we feel that we're going to miss something if we don't stay tuned in. And we seek out then uh, ways of of quickly satisfying ourselves for, uh, for the next uh, issue that's going to come along. Hence, the incredible number of pop-up ads that appear magically in our feeds, magically in an area that we were thinking about or may have been speaking about just yesterday. How does that happen? I'll leave that for others to describe to you. But the point is, it immediately takes us away from anything that we may have been doing that was good for us or constructive. And it really gets us to, I think, our, our discussion of social media and what is our online experience like and how destructive that is in terms of actually, as you mentioned, rewiring our brains. You quoted uh, the work of Dr. Donald Hebb, Hebbian theory, who stated that neurons that fire together will ultimately wire together. It means the more you do something, the more indelible that connection becomes. It's how you learn how to swing a golf club or play a tune. And if your mind is constantly engaged in the sense that the next threat is going to come right around the corner, your body and mind are going to be set up for that. And it's going to be very difficult then for you to appreciate that the world is in a different way, that the world is actually 
you know, a, a loving uh, environment for us uh, today for the time that we have left. And, you know, that that's for many people, the notion that the world is flat, not round. They just cannot get there. And we talk about that in the book because the more we lock into, as we talked about earlier, the amygdala, the less we are able to engage something called cognitive empathy, which is basically the uh, ability of a person to experience another person's perspective. For example, um, you know, you may feel a a certain way about something. Um, Cognitive empathy on my part would be for me to try it on. What is it that you're telling me that, um, I, I don't know, you know, pick something outlandish, the world is flat. And I don't necessarily believe that, but you may believe it. And I think that the Agora, the marketplace, is where we used to freely exchange ideas and come up with new ideas. These days, it's one way or the other. It's either black or white. There's no gray. There's no common ground. And you know that is to our detriment on multiple levels. Number one, we don't make a progress that way when we dig our heels in. There's no coming together and sharing of ideas. And number two, when we lose cognitive empathy, we enhance our connection to the amygdala to lock us into short-sighted thinking and self-centered thinking. And we lose not only cognitive empathy, but another type of empathy that is, in my opinion, equally important, and that is emotional empathy. And that is um, the ability that we have, which can be cultivated, to experience the emotions of another person, not to try on what he or she is thinking, but to experience their emotions. I mean, we know this when you watch uh, somebody stub their toe, we say, oh, ouch, Uh, we make the face that somebody would make if they uh, would stub their own toe. But that's important that we, we share in the pleasures and pains of other people. And that makes us more caring and compassionate individuals as we lock into the amygdala based upon all these inputs from news, from social media, et cetera, we even lose that ability. We lose the the ability that we have to be compassionate beings. And, you know, that really motivated us to continue working on, on this book when we realized that, you know, when you are distanced from the prefrontal cortex, a lot of things happen that aren't good. We cannot plan for the future. We cannot experience cognitive empathy, emotional empathy. We become very narcissistic, locked into the world revolving around ourselves. And right now, as you and I have this conversation, we need to function as a global community more than ever before in the history of our planet if we are going to move ahead and move past this whole COVID thing. Because truly when we have and uh, I'm hoping you'll see the segue. Uh, if we have a need to develop, let's say, herd immunity, where there's a time where everyone on the planet, or at least whatever the magic number is, 70%, has immunity, that allows us to achieve a lower than one R naught. The R naught has to be less than one to allow us then, or to allow uh, the virus uh, to not be able to gain foothold in in enough people that it continues to to, uh, propagate. Uh, That said, it's not Canada, it's not the United States, it's not North America, it's not the Americas, it is truly the globe. Unless you are willing to lock down and not have interaction with anybody else vis-a-vis New Zealand, which pulled it off because uh, they were able to achieve an R-naught less than one. 
But if we're going to do this as a global community, we've all got to be in this together. And it's, it's challenging to hear that, that statement, we're all in this together, when, when really we could be doing a lot more as a global community in the face of this challenge. And, you know, it's basically bringing on board the prefrontal cortex to do the right thing for myself, for you, for everyone around, and even doing the right thing for our planet from even an environmental perspective. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. And I, I think that that's so well said because it, I think it's easy for someone listening, you know, you said if someone stubs their toe, we go, ah, you know, like if you see, you know, your child or a little, you know, scrape their knee and they're crying, like our mirror neurons are like, oh baby, like oh, you must, that must've hurt so much. You must be, you know, it must be so scared, but it's almost like these mirror neurons, we, we can't, we can't, or we're losing the ability to um, to engage them in some of these global, this global discussion that you're, that you're referring to. And then when you are locked into the amygdala, as you were so eloquently describing, there really has, there's this cognitive dissonance that happens. So any type of information that runs contrary to the schema that you have already predetermined to be, you know, I'm using air quotes here, right. You know, you completely disregard it. And one of the things that I really appreciated about this book was that is not science, right? Like science is a conversation. And if, for example, like the flat earthers, you know, if someone was like, no, this is the evidence for it. You'd look at the horizon and it should, you know, you know, whatever, whatever, um, evidence that they present, I think that I may not necessarily agree with them, but I would be really curious to understand how, what deduction, how they came to that decision and whether any of that is relevant. And that's, that is the scientific method. And what I think that, you know, we've seen is there has been these, you know, as you said, like grinding your feet in, you know, you're grinding into your position, you're digging your heels in, that was a uh, digging your heels into your position. And that's when science comes to a halt. And that's not, you know, people say the science is settled and it's like, that's, that's an oxymoron. Like the science is not dust. It doesn't settle. It's a continuing conversation. And as more relevant data, you know, comes to fruition, that should be integrated and built up on top of whatever base theory, you know, we're, we're working on. And, yeah. And, and I will say that there's always criticism when you change your opinion. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially if you're a scientist. I mean, I, I've been so challenged by people saying, Dr. Promoter, you know, you told us that we should be on a low fat diet. Answer is, you're right. I did say that it was 20 to 25 years ago. 
And I was going with what the best science was telling us, the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, and come to realize that that, you know, that was highly influenced by industry and that uh, the sugar industry wanted us to go on a low fat diet and eat more carbs, eat more sugar, whatever. We don't have to go into that. But my point is I changed my messaging and the criticism for changing my position on certain topics um, is, is overwhelming, but that's what you want scientists to do, to look at the best available evidence and then, you know, uh, opine based upon what you see. And, uh, you know, there, th these days uh, people say, you know, don't, don't let good factual material get in the way of a, an emotional decision. Uh, the truth is we need, uh, we need facts and we need science and we need to be uh, dynamic in our outreach in terms of being comfortable, able and comfortable to change our messaging based upon the input, uh, which for me and obviously for you is science. But inherent in that is the fact that it's going to change with time. You know, in, in my medical training years ago, uh, we were told that humans did not have the ability to grow new brain cells. That was, I was taught off that too. the table. I was taught that and, too. You know, yeah. it, it wasn't until uh, the late 1990s when Dr. Erickson uh, proved that in humans, we were experiencing neurogenesis, a wonderful term, uh, and that beyond that, uh, another Dr. Erickson, unrelated, uh, demonstrated that in fact, certain lifestyle choices can enhance that activity, that we can grow new brain cells. My gosh, that, that was a challenge. I mean, I, I, when, when I read it, I thought, really? And then the science, of course, has evolved to indicate that that is true. There was a time when uh, we were told that your DNA is locked in a glass case and it is a one-way street giving out information, DNA, uh, mRNA, ribosomes make proteins, one-way street, and that nothing influences our DNA. Now we live in a, a world where we're talking about the epigenome and we realize that every food we eat, every lifestyle variable is playing upon our epigenome and nuancing the expression moment to moment of our DNA. That is categorically opposite of my original belief system inculcated in my mind by people who knew their stuff and were great scientists. So we really have to be, um, the word is open-minded and it's not just we who are involved in, you know, scientific pursuits, but I think everybody should just take a deep breath and maybe become good listeners a little bit and realize that, um, you know, that's the best thing we have going here is to work together on the same side of the court and not see each other across a fence or here in America, it's across the aisle in our, in, in Congress, you know, where we have an aisle where we have Republicans on one side, we have Democrats on another side and they're segregated by this aisle. And that even makes it worse in terms of them ever being able to communicate and share ideas. Yeah. My grandmother, who never published anything, used to say you have two ears and one mouth for a reason because you should be listening mm, twice, like that. twice as much as you talk. <laughs> so, you know, there's some uh, there's some wisdom, um, some basic wisdom in there as well. Let's let's talk. We've touched on sleep. 
You touched on a little bit of excess adiposity. Let's talk a little bit about food because this is one of the areas that I see, you know, giving someone a new diet, as you, you've already said, is not necessarily the answer, but people really get tripped up because when you talk about having a carbohydrate appropriate diet, whatever that might look like um, for the patient, I often hear, but I'm, I'm, doc, not, I'm not eating sugar. Like I'm not, I don't have sugar, right? But then you sort of look at maybe a food journal or something and they're having canned tomato sauce and, you know, which is of course full filled with sodium and sugar and, you know, the canned, any sort of pro, any canned food really has a lot of, I call them sneaky sugars because it doesn't have sugar on the label. I actually, I, I run a ketogenic program for women and I have a sort of a cheat sheet for them to take to the store. There's like a hunt last time I revised it, it was like a hundred and I think it was 32 different words for sugar, you know, it's like, and they have like really sexy names too. It's like malto, you know, it's like this beautiful, like, oh, that sounds like it's so good for me, you know? Nectar, agave nectar. (laughs) Nectar of the gods, right? What could be wrong with that? (laughs) 70 to 90% fructose. Right. Looks good to me. Yeah. Yeah. So can you, um, can you expand a little bit on how sugar, um, whatever sexy name we want to call it, sugar, you know, processes glucose or fructose, um, how that influences our brain in terms of our decision-making vis-a-vis, uh, inflammation or, you know, however you'd like to, however you'd like to expand on it. Well, there are a couple of dots that need connection here and, um, it'll take a little time, but that's okay. Um, So everybody has a sweet tooth. That's uh, deeply ingrained as a survival mechanism. Eating sweets in times uh, of food scarcity was important because uh, the sweets that we would find as hunter-gatherers were sweets that contained both glucose and fructose. And the real signal was fructose, not glucose. In the short run, glucose elevates Uh, insulin as a response, but it's really the fructose that does the damage. And it used to be a survival advantage in that fructose told uh, told the body that we're getting ready for a time of food scarcity. Why? The uh, fruit ripens in the fall to prepare us for the winter. And humans and other uh, great apes, uh, select primates have a mutation in what is called the uricase uh, genes, the genes that make a, an enzyme that breaks down uric acid such that when we consume fructose, uh, ultimately it becomes uric acid, telling our bodies, make fat, store fat, don't use fat, and make glucose for the brain because we're coming up to a time when there's food scarcity. So in a very real sense, uh, in our ancestral days, it was survival of the fattest. Now, not that being fat was ever an advantage, but the ability to make body fat and to store body fat was an advantage. Not only people who, or even the primate ancestors that survived were fat, but they were fatter than those who did not survive by virtue of the fact that they could not store fat because of this, uh, their lack of ability to make uric acid from fructose. So that said, we all carry this uricase uh, mutation such that when we consume fructose, fruit sugar, what was a survival mechanism now coding for making fat is now killing us. So the consumption of fructose 
though it was advocated uh, in recent years because it does not immediately have an effect on insulin levels. That's true. But make no mistake about it. It dramatically affects insulin in terms of leading to insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, increased body weight, increased uh, lipogenesis or creation of fat in the liver, increased inflammation, and even hypertension. Those are the downstream effects of fructose through what is called uric acid. You know, until recently, uh, and in fact, I would say even now, most healthcare providers think about uric acid only in the context of gout or kidney stones. We now know that uric acid is a danger signal, a stress signal that we're about to have a time when we're not going to have food, so better make body fat. Uh, that's, all this is now just becoming uh, unraveled. I'm actually writing a book about this. So when we realize how powerful a signal is to our physiology, fructose uh, is, telling us to prepare for food scarcity in the context of the notion that more than 60% of the processed foods available uh, in the 2 million prepared foods or processed foods on the grocery store shelves here in North America, added sweetener, have added sweetener, mostly derivatives of high fructose corn syrup or high fructose corn syrup in and of itself. It's a scary notion. Uh, again, it's playing upon, it's hacking into our desire for sweet. Nobody can tell you they don't have a sweet tooth. We do have a sweet tooth. A craving sweet or wanting, at least desiring sweet is like a uh, desiring to reproduce. It's built into uh, our system such that it, you know, it's a primal instinct allowing us to survive. Um, and that's being preyed upon and played upon by industry, by making these foods that contain sugar. And what is table sugar even? 50% fructose, high fructose corn syrup, you know, 50, 60, maybe even higher percentage of fructose. So it's really the fructose that from an evolutionary perspective was such a powerful survival tool for us to find fruit. And now um, the table, you know, the environment has changed. So our genetics uh, loaded the gun uh, and our environment now is pulling the trigger uh, in terms of all these downstream effects in terms of chronic degenerative conditions like heart disease, like Alzheimer's, like cancer, type 2 diabetes, obesity, that the World Health Organization ranks as the number one cause of death on our planet, not COVID. The number one cause of death right now when you and I have this conversation uh, are chronic degenerative conditions, which are by and large related to lifestyle, which are related to inflammation. Now, your question, I think, looked at how does this then play into decision-making? And that was the, one of the important revelations of our book uh, in our discovery, in our research, is that inflammation uh, disconnects the prefrontal cortex from the amygdala and allows the amygdala to make worse decisions. Yowzer, I mean, think about this. When the amygdala rules the day, decisions are made based upon what's best for me, not you. Short-term thinking, environment be damned, my future be damned. It's what I want right now. I don't care what it, how it plays out in the future. In the context of the Western diet, which is high in sugar, increasing inflammation. What I'm connecting here is the Western 
now global diet, higher in sugar, leading to inflammation through multiple mechanisms, changing our decision-making to being short-sighted and self-centered. And we're seeing that play itself out around the globe. It's a big concept, isn't it? That the change in diet of our planet being perpetrated upon us by the global food purveyors, and there are only a handful of them, is changing how people around the world are behaving, how they see themselves, uh, and how they're seeing others. So it is, um, it's a sobering realization when we connect those several, several dots. Uh, the good news is there, you know, there are some clarion calls out there. There's small voices in the distance who are making this information known to others. And, and hopefully people can realize what's going on and, and change their destiny. And what I think is so important is this message of hope, because I think that we have these big food and big ag where you have, you know, potato chips like Lay's puts their, you know, slogan, like, I bet you can't eat just one, right? It's like, I, and you can't, and you, it's cause it's bliss. It's like this bliss point food where our brain just keeps coming back for more. It doesn't quite satisfy us. We need another one and then another one. And then the whole, like, just like the commercial, you see like everyone taking the little chips and then it's, it's all done. And I think that, you know, for the, for the listener, for the reader of this book, it's like, okay, there's not something I'm not broken. You know, it's not something where I don't have the wherewithal or the, uh, you know, the, the, the power to resist. It's like, these things are baked in, they are designed to make you go back for more. They're designed to make you binge. They're designed to, you know, you know, light up your, looks like your brain is on crack when you're having, you know, some of these foods, um, Let's, let's talk about how we can begin to, with this understanding. So we understand our sleep is being hijacked. The, you know, the devices, the, you know, we are, we are seeing the algorithm from the social devices now, you know, (laughs) you know, coming out in from like, I, you know, from URL into IRL into in real life from the, you know, the algorithms of Instagram and Facebooks and all the other social media channels, we see this division, um, in our society, but how can we begin to pull that back in? How can we begin to tighten the reins? Well, I I think job one is recognizing that it's happening. Uh, recognizing that these are deep hacks into our primitive brain survival programs. That's what, that's the reason for adding salt and sugar and fat to our foods because we, uh, are wired to, to seek out salt, it maintains our blood pressure. We're wired to seek out fat because it's a very dense source of survival calories. And we're certainly wired to seek out sugar because that signals our body to make and store fat and to make us a little bit insulin resistant. We're also wired to be social beings. We're wired to live in community, right? With division of labor and supporting each other. That was a powerful survival mechanism. And that is being hacked into by this thing called social media, which is anything but. It is not social media because it's leading to further isolation. So how could we call it social? 
but that's what happens. You know, we are just, uh, you know, desperate for the next uh, post so that we can see how many likes that we get uh, and the interactions that we get on any, any number of platforms that are out there. Uh, we feel are sustaining and we feel that we are socially engaged and we are to some degree, but nowhere near uh, the level of social engagement that is so good for us that we get from being with another person, interacting personally. Uh, even what you and I are doing right now is far more therapeutic for us, if I can use that term, uh, than the mindlessness of hoping we get enough likes and thumbs up or whatever it may be. Those things that uh, we, you know, we, we watch, we see functional MRI scans being done on people being shown images with the number of likes displayed. We watch the changes that happen in their brains. And it is just, as you mentioned before, it stimulates areas of the brain that deal with, um, you know, dopamine uh, production and the sense of satisfaction. And really we crave more. That's what dopamine is all about. It's the craving and it's subsequent momentary satisfaction. We're led to believe that we can become satisfied when we buy whatever the next thing is that we think we need to buy because it pops up. And we're never content because we never can buy enough to satisfy ourselves. And that's, that's what content, uh, being content is all about is having enough. Uh, our online experience constantly bombards us with the notion that we do not have enough. We need to buy the next hottest color of lipstick. That car is the one uh, that the sexy people are driving. That guy's wearing that really cool wristwatch and look at the babe on his arm. All the stuff that we think if we do that, then we're going to be satisfied and, we, and we're not. So it's the notion of distancing ourselves from this external sense of satisfaction and finding satisfaction with where we are right now. And it means turning off the computer, the iPhone, your smartphone, uh, your pad, the television, all of these inputs and trying at first, it's going to be an effort to become comfortable with not having that uh, input, that powerfully destructive input don't get me wrong, there's an upside to our technology. The internet is an incredible democratization of knowledge. I'm all in favor of it. We write books based upon using the internet for research. It's terrific. But we developed, as you mentioned uh, earlier, the acronym of time, test of time, T-I-M-E, about the internet experience. T, how much time are you going to allocate for what you want to do online, whether it's to connect with friends from high school or research, uh, you know, some biochemical pathway, whatever it is, or, or buy something that you think you need, whatever it is, I, T-I-M-E, I, is it intentional? What, what's your goal? What do you plan to do? Uh, if this is your goal, great, but don't click the pop-up and go off into who knows where the rabbit hole, uh, where you are lost, M, are you mindful while you're having this experience? Are you keeping in mind uh, what, you know, what your experience, what your feelings are right now? Are people playing with your emotions? Is this really what I need to be doing uh, during my time online? And finally, E, is it or was it enriching? Now that it's over, am I net positive? Am I feeling like I accomplished something good for me? Or do I feel really crappy now that I just uh, spent that two and a half hours 
of my day are, are gone now because of what I just did online. And what do I have to show for it? You know, it's really important. And we talk about it in the book that there's a lot you have to accomplish in the day. If you value things like exercise, getting out in nature, preparing your food, meditation, all of the things so that, you know, when we recognize that 40% of the time, at least in America, that people are awake, they're doing something in front of a screen, 40% of the day. That adds up in a lifetime to 22 years of screen time. Say about that what you will, but I will say one thing, and that is when you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. So with 40% of your day already dedicated to being in front of a screen, where is there time for meditation, exercise, preparing your food, interacting socially with other people, being in nature, things that are going to help rewire your brain back to the better decision maker where you and I started today. And those things are things that people typically say, well, I will find time for exercise tomorrow. And I would say, don't find time for exercise or meditation or other things that are important. Do not find time for it. Make time for it. Find time is, well, if I, if I, you know, if there turns out to be a spare half hour somewhere, I'll jump on the elliptical machine. No, from two to 2.30, I'm gonna be on the elliptical machine. Or from 11 to 11.45, I'm gonna walk outside with my next door neighbor or whatever it's going to be. From 5.30 till 6.15, uh, I'm gonna be working on preparing fresh food for dinner for myself and my significant other, whatever it may be. Not find the time, because if you find the time, then it's fast food. Then it's, you know, I'm still online doing something that really is important. If you apply the test of time, especially the enrichment part, did you really find that you are better off now that you spent that three hours uh, down a rabbit hole learning about something or just mindlessly doing something? Um, that's where it really matters. So it's about making, it's about prioritization. Right. And I think that that's probably one of the most important pieces of the book is what is the opportunity cost? Because you said it, if you're not, if you're doing the social media, if you're mindlessly scrolling or you're using it as a self soothing mechanism, you're not doing something else like the meditation, like the exercise or the walk in nature or the getting the sunshine and the listening to the birds chirp, like you're not rewiring that prefrontal cortex um, so that it can inhibit um, the lower brain centers like the amygdala. And so I think that that's something that I don't think enough people will consider is what is the opportunity cost here? What am I losing by engaging in this activity? And you can kind of take it out to like another 30,000 feet and you can say, okay, at the end of your life, you know, when we think about the top five regrets, you know, of, of people on their deathbed, it's like, I wasn't who, you know, I wasn't who I was. I wasn't happy enough. I didn't enjoy the moment. These are, these are things, these are principles that you're teaching in the book. And the good news with this book is that as you lay out, you, you sort of, the whole book is sort of building up to this 10 day, um, plan where you just make these small little changes. Like, it's not like, okay, here's the ketogenic diet. I'll see you in a month. Right. It's like, okay. Like, <laughs> good luck with that. Good Test luck with that. Yeah. See you in a month and we'll see how much, you know, see what your blood glucose looks like. But it's like, okay, today you're just going to limit, you know, you're just going to limit your media today. It's just one day. Right. And any, we can all do something for one day. Right. You can keep a gratitude journal. 
Yeah. Uh, you yeah. can stop having coffee after 2 p.m. Mm. You know, these are, are, are little inroads, but uh, but they build upon each other. And so that by not having coffee, I don't know why I picked that, but maybe you'll sleep better or you don't watch TV at night or you wear amber glasses if you must. And then you sleep better. And then the next day you're going to have a little bit more ability to make a better decision. And that might then open the door to a little bit of exercise. Who knew? Uh, and before you know it, uh, you know, life gets better and it's, it's less involved in, in people being, uh, you know, of, of your decision-making being sold to the highest bidder and you finally regaining uh, control. When you said bird stripping, I have to tell you where mine went, my mind went, though I'm trying to be as mindful as I can <laughs> be. Um, we have a mockingbird in the, up in, in a bush in the driveway. And every morning when I go out, uh, I hear this mockingbird. It's just the most wonderful thing. And I've never heard uh, the birds until quite recently. And I know they've always been there. Yeah. Uh, and to stop and just listen to that, it's, I hate to use the word nectar because we use it kind of in a negative connotation, <laughs> yes, before, but it is yes, maybe yes. ambrosia then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the food of the gods, not the drink of the gods. But um, there's so much out there to just stop and appreciate. Uh, and is it selfish? because it's helping me, you bet. Is there anything wrong with that? I don't think so. You know, um, you know it ultimately allows me to hopefully be uh, able to practice compassion in my life. And, you know, the Dalai Lama said that uh, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. So, hey, it's is it self-centered? Yeah, I guess it is, because I want to be happy. And uh, all these things allow you to tap into the gift. And that gift is the prefrontal cortex. Everything in the world is conspiring to keep you out of that area, to keep you out of the gift and lock you into making decisions that aren't necessarily in your interest, but are in the interest of others uh, uh, for whom, you know, who, who want to manipulate your decision making. And it's a, it's a heady concept, I get it. But I would simply ask uh, your viewers to take a moment and, and ask themselves about their decision-making and their, what is their day like? And is it really, are you getting as much out of it as you could? And I would submit that um, we can all, yours truly very much included, you know, continue to make these changes and to implement these tools to really achieve um, um, you know, like the Dalai Lama said, a, a level of happiness based upon how we're, we're treating other people. And, you know, as getting back to, as you and I started our conversation today, uh, now more than ever. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that we need to, I'm a big word nerd. So I think that we need to find, I think that the word selfish in and of itself implies narcissism. It has the, you know, you go all the way, you oscillate all the way to the end of one continuum and it must be the, if you're selfish, you must be the worst. But what's actually worse is being selfless where you are not concerned with the self. And if you just look at the word selfless, so less than self, you are not taking care of 
your body, which, and your brain, which is your temple. It is the only wealth that you have. It is the only place you ever have to live really. And if you're being selfish, concerned with the self, you know, there, I, I haven't quite found the word yet, but there needs to be a redefinition of, I think it's okay to be selfish. I think it's okay to put up boundaries. Like you're talking about, I'm going to put up a, a boundary around my two to two thirty PM in my calendar today for the elliptical or the post workout meditation or, you know, my little joy in the morning, which is my little espresso cup. I go sit outside. I listen to the birds chirping. I smell the, you know, I smell the trees and I'm like, ah, my, what am I, what am I worrying about again? Like I have this, I get to smell, you know, and you, I know we didn't get to talk about this, but you talk about, you know, the scent of being out in nature, these sort of compounds, uh, these phytoncides, if I'm pronouncing it properly. Yeah, correct. Yeah. That sort of make up the aromatics of, uh, you know, essential oils. Like whenever I go for a walk, there's sort of a green belt, you know, I'm in a city, but there's like a green uh, space that I go to often. You know, I look up at the trees and, you know, you look at the, like, I, I they, um, they look like a, it's like all the little dendritic, you know, branches. I'm like, ah, like, what am I worrying about again? Like I'm, these trees have seen much worse, you know, like they've seen, you know, so much and they're so wise. And um, yeah, it sort of brings me back to, uh, brings me back home in a way. Well, we we talked about this notion uh, today of disconnection, and we talked about it in the context of being disconnected from the prefrontal cortex, such that, you know, the, the adolescent is running our lives in terms of, I want it now, it's for me, the me generation, mm. uh, and we can reconnect. And then we can reconnect with people around us, and we can reconnect uh, with the planet and do and be better stewards of the planet. We can reconnect with good expression of our DNA. We can reconnect with the intent of our gut bacteria to keep us healthy. So this notion of reconnection, I think, uh, can be interpreted through multiple lenses. And it's the disconnection from each of those things that I have mentioned, I think, that is leading to our degradation of not only our health, uh, but our happiness as well. I mean, we live in a world where there is this narrative perpetrated upon us whereby we have this sense that we can do whatever we want in terms of our lifestyle choices, and then industry is going to create a fix for us. If we suddenly wake up one morning and we're a type 2 diabetic, why the doctor has a prescription pad that will pres prescribe us something wonderful to lower our A1C. Uh, if we become hypertensive, why there are drugs for that? You name it, there's a fix. Well, I think we had a real eye-opening uh, experience this past year where suddenly um, industry failed us globally in terms of a fix. Now, um, there have been a lot of you know, interesting revelations that have happened in the past one year, and I think that's one of them. And the fact that even though you are a treated diabetic, hypertensive, whatever it may be, your risk that we, this is where you and I started today, has, was called out uh, by the, the current pandemic situation. So again, it's about agency. And I think uh, we really want to reclaim our agency over our destiny. We sh I've never said that actually before, but agency of our destiny. That's, I like that. Um, because we've offloaded it and we've been uh, convinced that offloading uh, our 
our decision making to others, be it pharmaceutical, whoever, uh, will be in our interest. And we really need to reclaim that because, um, you know, in reality, we've been confronted with situation. Now we know that there's limitation in terms of what uh, modern medicine is able to do. You know, we talk about the healthcare plan for the population. What are we going to do for the healthcare of, in this case, America? And I would submit that our healthcare system has nothing to do with health. It's illness care. It's what do you do when you become a diabetic or you have a car wreck, whatever it may be, that's under the umbrella of healthcare. That's the health part, which isn't health, it's illness. And what about the care part? Where is the care in that whole equation. Um, I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see more um, compassion and interaction between healthcare provider and, and recipient uh, in, in relation to the incredible power of one human connecting to another human. I mean, you know, it's part of our education uh, or at least our dream, part of the Hippocratic Oath perhaps, but in the reality of our modern day, there, there's, with all due respect, precious little of that, that actually happens. And I think there is an incredible value of that personal interaction between healthcare provider and recipient that uh, is so much overlooked these days. I love that. And it's, it's like Wizard of Oz, right? Like you can click, you can go home whenever you want. And I, I think that when we, you know, when we continue to delegate, as you're saying, like delegating our health to, you know, what, whatever statin, whatever pill or, you know, for any ill, um, I think that you give away your power in a way. And what you've talked about in this book and m many of your books really is this idea of self-agency. So I really appreciate you um, talking about that. And I think that that's a great subtitle for whatever next book you're writing. Um, <laughs> uh, I could let you in on a little something. Please do. <laughs> All right. The title of my next book is Drop Acid. Mm. Are we talking like back to uric acid? Is that what we're you talking bet. about? Yeah. Good. I can't wait. Well, we're going to have to That's all it refers to is dropping acid. <laughs> Love that. Well, it's uh, it's very clever. All of your books, I you know, Grain Brain, all all of them have been uh, wonderful. So we'll have you back on the pod when Drop Acid. Oh, good. Looking is here. forward to it. Thank you, Stephanie. So tell me, so tell my listeners um, all the places that they can find you. So um, obviously, they can pick up. Tell them where they can pick up Brainwash where they can, if you are on social media, I know that you have, uh, you probably have, you know, a boundary around how much social media you engage in, but if people want to find you more about your work, uh, or your son, Dr. Austin, uh, Perlmutter, where can, where can my people find you? Well, Brainwash is available around the world, uh, in multiple, I think 14 languages now. Um, and it's available online and, and most books, bookstores. Uh, I'm at drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. Gee, Austin, uh, I, I don't, I can't readily give you, I think anyone just Google doc, Dr. Austin Perlmutter, A-U-S-T-I-N Perlmutter, and you'll find him. I should have memorized his, uh, his I, we're, uh, we're friends on, uh, on Instagram. So I'll Good, put his, so you I'll can put maybe Instagram put that handle. in as a graphic. Yeah, I'll put Sorry, that in Austin, you know, I do my best. <laughs> um, but anyway, our book, co-written by Austin is available everywhere. So thank you for that. Wonderful. Well, this has just been uh, truly such oh, a delight. I know the name of his podcast. Oh, what is the name of his podcast? It's Get the Stuck Out. Oh, you guys are so clever. Get the Stuck <laughs> Out. Uh, and I will say also, if uh, he's one of the top writers for Psychology Today, uh, they, and so he can be found online on Psychology Today. Awesome. I'll have all of this in the in the show notes for our awesome. listeners. 
Well, it's just been such a delight talking to you. Um, of course, I followed your work for many years and speaking to you is just, you know, one of the, when I was putting together, you know, lists of guests that I wanted for the podcast, you were one of the first people on my list. So oh, this goodness. is like thank a dream you. come true for me. So thank you so much for your time, your presence today and your focus, which are, you know, non-renewable uh, sources of energy. And I, and I really appreciate your, your brilliance today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, Betty's in my always, I am always entertained by leaving you Easter eggs. So I'm going to leave an Easter egg in this outro. So I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Perlmutter. Um, as I mentioned, um, just an absolute mentor, uh, from afar for me for many years and just a dream to be able to, um, speak with him and be able to download his intelligence to be able to give to all of you. And that he even knew who I was, honestly, it was like, so I tickle, I was just tickled with that. <laughs> he, he knew my book, he knew, you know, a lot about me, which I was just very, very flattered. And I wanted to read a, a review that came in for the podcast. These, these reviews make me cry. Like they make me so happy and they really do uh, solidify um, my desire to continue to bring you content. So this is from a chiropractor. Um, the, uh, the username is Cairo Kid Mash. And um, she writes, and this is from the United States. She writes, girl, yes. I always like, <laughs> I always like podcast. I always like reviews that start like that. I am so in love with your podcast. I just bought the book. I've devoured it. This material that you are bringing is everything that we are doing in our little town of Dothan, Alabama. As a functional, as a female functional medicine and applied, uh, an AK uh, chiropractor myself, I am thrilled to be learning from your geeky goddess magic. I am proud to be a new Betty and to share with my patients your uh, brilliance and your health tips. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because to know that I'm helping in some way, your patients to know that I'm touching Alabama, uh, in some ways it's a place that I've never been, but to know that I am making, even if it's just a little squeak of an impact there, uh, honestly just leaves my heart so full. So thank you so much for taking the time to leave that review. And Betty, if you are listening and you feel called to leave either a five-star rating or a review of the pod, the more we get, the more the algorithm likes that. And then it shows our podcast to more people. I would really appreciate that. This is, um, aside from my children, this is, and my book, this is my fifth child. <laughs> this is my podcast. I spend a lot of time on it and I hope that, um, I hope that this is of value for you. So with that said, thank you so much, Cairo Kid Mash from the US of A. And thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. 